This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of InPractice. Ruth, can you provide a short introduction to your background, please? Sure. So my name is Ruth Stackpole-Moore and I'm an investment manager with Omni Bridgeway based in Singapore. I joined the Omni Bridgeway team just over a year ago, about this time in 2019, uh, and that was just around the time of the merger between the IMF and the Omni Bridgeway brands. I've worked in third-party funding now for about five years, always in Asia. Um, I initially set up um, what was probably one of the first dedicated Asian offices for a global funder in Hong Kong in 2015. And that meant I've probably got some of the longest on the ground experience of, of anyone funding in this part of the world. Also means I've been quite involved in some of the developments of how the industry is accepted in different jurisdictions within the region. And since that time, I moved down to Singapore, which is where I joined Omni Bridgeway. And yeah, that's basically my background with them in terms of my professional experience. I'm Australian initially, and that's where I got my initial qualification. But I'm also qualified in the UK. I've lived and worked in five other countries. So I've also practiced in France, for example, had some experience of civil law as well as common law jurisdictions. And mainly during that time, it was work in private practice with top tier international firms. So, for example, I started my career with Kudare Brothers, which actually is a firm that doesn't exist anymore, but was a very well regarded international firm at that point. I worked with them in, in Sydney and Paris. I also worked with Oric and Decket, also in Paris, and then moved to Deborah Boys in London. And that was all before moving out here to Asia about eight years ago now, where then I also had the opportunity to gain experience of how institutions manage arbitral proceedings. There I ran the team, the arbitration team at the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre for a number of years. So gained particularly experience into that side of how arbitrations are managed and run. So effectively, a litigation case involves disputing parties. They might be single parties in opposition or they might be groups of parties. And that might be in the litigation context itself, which is in the public forum, so in courts. It might be in a private dispute resolution context, so that's arbitration. It might be in an insolvency context, so where you've got insolvency practitioners, creditors and others involved. So there's really a whole range of scenarios in which you would have litigation cases or arbitration cases arise. And then in terms of you know, what, what value we add and how we become involved. In the past, typically funding was developed as an access to justice type tool. So those, so parties to a dispute who couldn't afford to bring their proceedings. So often that might have been in the insolvency context or simply people who through the circumstances had been forced into a position where they didn't have the money to bring their claim. They would look for a funder to allow them to pursue their claim and hopefully ultimately recover. Um, what's developed in the industry since then, and which I think is a sort of major value proposition that we have now, is that third-party funding represents a cash management and risk allocation tool for companies, whether they have the money to pursue their proceedings or not. Now, that's not necessarily the central question. Really, what they're thinking about is their business strategy. Do they want to spend their balance sheet on these proceedings? Uh, and what they have to spend to pursue their claims. Or normally that would be juxtaposed with, do they want to spend that on their business? 
So now what they can do is they can use our finance for the legal claims, use their own money for their business, or in some circumstances, even get working capital from us to invest in their core business operations while at the same time being able to pursue their case. How do you originate cases? It's a very relationship-driven industry. So cases typically come to us probably in three ways. They might come from clients directly. So if a company, for example, has been involved in a dispute before where funding has been used, they might come to us directly. Or if they're more sophisticated and it's something that they're aware of, they'll simply pick up the phone, tell us they've got a dispute, um, and we'll take it from there. Other circumstances might be they've gone to their lawyers and they're discussing their prospects and and how they might wish to take forward their case and the lawyer might suggest um, that they consider funding, either because the case is one where they might not wish to invest the money in the case so it wouldn't go forward without a funder, or it might be, you know, just an alternative and different way to manage the financial arrangements in that case. So the lawyers might then suggest that that they approach us. Or finally, other professional advisors, other types of experts might be looking at cases and also might suggest that the case is one that's suitable for funding. So in all of those circumstances, you know, we would then commence our due diligence process and, and run through that in looking at the particular case. How are the cases different from, say, directly from a corporate and a law firm? Generally, there may or may not be any difference, whether it comes from a client or through the law firm will largely just depend on the level of education of either party about funding. Um, It's not necessarily the case that a different type of case would come through each route necessarily. The size or the type of the cases, they're kind of similar. Well, I mean, what we do find, so we get a lot of inquiries, you know, on average per month, we might be seeing 40 or 50 inquiries of those who are interested in funding. Often ones that come from individuals or companies directly may not necessarily be suitable for funding because they might be too small or they may not have sort of a developed position yet such that we can really assess them. So typically, if a case comes to us through a law firm, because they generally at this stage have a higher understanding of what a funder might be looking for, there's necessarily been a sort of a filtering process, which means the case may be more suitable for funding having gone through that process, but it's not necessarily the case. For example, one of my current funded cases came to us directly from a client. Uh, They're based in Russia and Moscow, and they didn't have lawyers involved. They came to us. We've introduced them to lawyers, and the case is now proceeding with our funding. Can Omni Bridgeway, for example, or any other larger players, do they have an advantage any way to originate deals that other smaller competitors wouldn't be able to? So, I mean, the underlying premise for any litigation and or proceeding dispute that we would get involved with means there has to be an underlying legal claim in existence. So we can't originate any kind of investment unless there is that underlying claim. So no funder versus another can change that. In a general commercial claim, it could be the case where because of the expertise that we have as investment managers, we can speak to clients, understand their situation and be able to see that they have a claim where others who don't have that particular experience might not appreciate that. Having said that, what we would then do is we would suggest that they get advice from lawyers, from a legal team. We could introduce them to someone or if they already had an existing set of advisors from them because it's not really our job to to put the case together for them. They need to do that with their lawyers. 
but we might point them in the direction of suggesting that they had a good claim that they wanted to consider further. So with our particular, you know, all of our investment managers have years of experience in-house, in private practice, in various contexts. So we might see opportunities that others might not. Why are the relationships with law firms important or could they provide an advantage for for you? Yeah. I mean, relationships with law firms are key, particularly at this stage where, or at least in Asia, where the industry is still relatively nascent and developing. You know, a lot of cases come through law firms. So obviously, you know, our relationships with them are very important. They need to see us as adding value. They need to see us as a collaborative partner in the dispute as opposed to an obstacle to its dispute. So I think, again, all of our backgrounds, myself and other investment managers at Omni Bridgeway, you know, we've all worked for top tier firms. We know what it is like to be in private practice. We speak the the same language effectively. So I think, you know, from that perspective, firms, I think, find it easy to work with us. They see value in the strategic insights that we bring because we know what it's like to be in their shoes. So I think that's certainly a way that that our investment management team differs from other funders and, and does help with the origination process. So let's say I'm, I'm a top lit law firm. I have a client that has a potential case. Why would I choose or how would I choose a litigation funder? So there's a lot of things that you need to look at in terms of who makes a good partner in providing the finance. I mean, one, you have to think about do you want just the provision of finance or do you want expertise to come with that? And so that's something, again, where Omni Bridgeway is, is really quite standout in that respect. Some funders simply provide the money. They don't really do any day-to-day management or engagement on the case. They sit back and wait to see what happens once the case is resolved. In our case, you know, our level of involvement differs according to the case, but we certainly add a lot of strategic value as the case unfolds and we think help to maximise the chances of success in terms of getting a favourable judgment or an award. Another, I think, very important factor people think about when looking at a funder is expertise in recovery, because it is well and good to have a judgment or an award issued in your client's favour. But what are you going to do about getting the money after that? And really, you know, that's what it boils down to for everyone. Well, not so much for the law firms, because often their fees get paid regardless. But for the client and for us, I mean, I think that's one of the key things about third-party funding is that it's non-recourse. So success for us means money in the door. And unless money is recovered at the end of the day, we don't get a return of our investment and we certainly don't get any return on that investment. So the capability to recover funds at the end of the day is crucial. And we, Omni Bridgeway is one of a very small group of funders that has in-house capabilities in that respect. And very much it's something that we've been doing for the last 30 years and our track record is is excellent and unmatched. So I think that's something that law firms would take into account on their client's behalf when choosing a funder. Another positive factor from our perspective and from clients' perspective is that Omnibridgeway is a listed entity. So our financial position is transparent. One of the key things to think about, you know, a, a third-party funder is a partner throughout the entire dispute, which can often take three to five or or more years, you need to be sure that that they're going to be there for the duration. You know, the transparency of our financial position means it's easy to see that we have the funds that we're committing to a case and that we will be there, you know, for the long term. So I think that's very important, all things that people should really consider when when looking at who to partner with. Okay, so I've got this case. I come to to Omni and what's the typical commercial structure? 
So um, this is one of the aspects that I like most about working for OmniBridgeway. It's the commerciality and the flexibility of the solutions that we can offer. It's not necessarily the same in other funders. We have criteria, sort of rule of thumb criteria that we look for in cases that we are going to invest in, but the approach generally is very can-do. You know, how can we make this investment work? What terms can we offer that are going to work for the client and will also work for us? And that really means that the financial the financials of any particular deal vary quite widely depending on what the case looks like. So essentially, you know, the criteria that we apply relate to three things. The first is the merits of the case, and that is always the same. There has to be good prospects of success or there's no point investigating the case further. From a legal perspective, you mean? From a legal perspective. And then also the other two criteria that we apply come to the economics. The second criteria looks at the possibility of recoveries. And then the other criteria that we look at are the economics of the particular deal. And in making an assessment on that basis, we are looking at, you know, how much is it going to cost for the proceedings? How much of that cost is the client looking for us to fund? Are they looking for any additional capital to go with that? Do they need seed funding to investigate the basis of the claim? Do they need any working capital to keep their business going while the claim is on or just generally? So we need to understand, you know, the the quantum of funding that is being sought. And then we need to look at that in comparison to the realistic value of the claim. And so that's not the headline value of what is actually being claimed, but what we actually think the case is worth. And then we'll, you know, offer terms on the basis of what the ratio of those two elements look like. And generally pricing, it can be any number of different structures. It might be, we might get, we we get a return of our, our funded costs as a reimbursement of those. And then the return would typically be either, it could be a multiple of what we've spent. It could be a percentage of the amount that's actually recovered. It could be a combination of those two things. Terms might vary depending on, you know, up to a certain amount of recoveries, we might recover certain terms and then beyond a certain hurdle, we might then recover on a different basis according to the nature of the claim, the quantum of the claim, how long we think it's going to take. So let's let's say that we've got a claim. This claim that I'm bringing to you is, again, let's just say it's a, firstly, I'm a law firm, so I still charge my fees and the risk that I'm putting, is it purely on my fees and my time as a law firm? Or how do you look at the risk balance between you as a funder and me as a law firm? That differs according to jurisdiction and what's permissible. So in the US, for example, where contingency fees are permissible, law firms can also share in the risk of the case. So in those circumstances, you know, law firms may already be funding cases themselves, i.e. they've taken the risk onto their own balance sheet in terms of how much of their fees they're being paid up front and how much they've deferred on a contingent basis. And they might then wish us to step in at a later point to, you know, de-risk that case or to free up some capital so that they can take on more cases or, or various other scenarios. Those type of arrangements are not permissible in much of Asia. It is allowed in China, but in Singapore and Hong Kong, for example, you can't have contingency fees. So typically, yes, the firm will be paid its you know, usually on an hourly rate, or it might be on some kind of capped fee arrangement, or it might be, you know, there might be stages and certain payments are uh, applied to the various stages of the proceedings. So there's any number of different fee arrangements that might be agreed upon, and we can work around whatever those arrangements are. 
does the difference in the structure of the contingency fees in the US and Asia, how does that impact the pricing and competition in the market? In terms of pricing, if you've got a law firm that's acting on contingency, it means typically we're not being asked to provide as much capital, which means it then will be less costly um, to the client. But that's equally the case in Asia if you have a well-resourced client who simply wants us to provide, say, 50% of the ongoing costs and, and they will cover the rest. So it's not necessarily determinative of the price in terms of competition. I mean, I think the biggest difference it makes is that in places where contingency fees are allowed, we can fund law firms themselves. So they have will be funding a portfolio of claims with a particular law firm. Whereas in Asia, we can't do that. We're funding, we can fund portfolios, but they would be portfolios for the same client or cases on a standalone basis for the client, but we're not actually funding law firms. And does that mean the fact that you're funding law firms in the US, does that mean that the potential value add is lower or what's, how does the value add that you're providing differ? No, I think the value add is still the same. The proposition is just simply where the risk is allocated. So you know, in a case where you've got a firm acting on a contingency basis and we are also funding, the risk, the client has managed to shift the risk to the law firm and the funder, whereas if it's a contingency-only arrangement, the risk has only been shifted to the firm. If it's a funded-only case, no contingency fees, then the risk has just been shifted to, to us. So that's the real difference, I think. And so going back to this case then, so I bring you this case, how do you begin to carry out due diligence on the case? So this is where our expertise really comes to the fore, I think. And this is the way we do it because we have our own expertise and all of our investment managers, you know, former litigators or dispute resolution professionals. So essentially the first step is we ask for a certain number of initial documents so that we can do a preliminary due diligence. And what we're looking for is the, you know, we need to have an understanding of those three criteria that I outlined already. So we need to have an understanding of the merits of the case. That means we're looking at both the basis of the claim, but also defences that might be raised against it. And we're looking at that on an objective basis, not on this is our best case scenario basis. Then obviously we need to be able to take a view on the economics. So there needs to be some reasonable way to make an assessment of the value of the claim. In some cases, that's quite straightforward. There is no issue, breach of contract or, for example, you know, something like that. It's quite clear what the, the value might be. In other circumstances, it might be the case that some expert work needs to be done, at least of a preliminary nature, to really get an idea of what the claim is worth. And then, you know, we would need some kind of estimate from the law firm as to the budget that's going to be required. And once we've got those three pieces of information, we will do our own intelligence gathering in relation to the defendant or the respondent to get an idea of their financial position and whether recovery will be possible. But if all of those things stack up, then we like to move really quickly to offering indicative commercial terms because for us, there's no point wasting our time doing a full due diligence into a case if we can't agree the basic commercials. So we offer the terms at an early stage that will often only take you know, a couple of weeks to get to that stage. Once we do have those commercial terms agreed, then we will do our full due diligence process. Again, most of that's usually done in-house with us. But if we feel the need to, we might, at our own cost, get a second opinion on some of the legal you know, arguments, or we might need to do further research into the, the asset position of the defendant and think about the recovery strategy at that stage, because that's always key in our assessment process. And then, you know, Still, though, we're looking for comfort on those three criteria. 
And so long as our further due diligence means everything still stacks up, then effectively we take the case to the investment committee. It's my role as an investment manager to present the case to the investment committee, why it's a good investment. And if they approve it, then, you know, with the approved budget, we then cement funding the case and start paying the fees as the case progresses. How important is speed in getting back those first indicative terms? It really depends on the case more and more. Well, it depends on the jurisdiction, but quite often now we're in a competitive process. So obviously, you know, if you drag your feet in terms of that initial review and providing terms, then you're already at a disadvantage. But equally, you know, the pricing of the funding is also very important in the decision making as a client. So you need to make sure you've done enough work to be able to properly reflect the risk in the pricing that you can offer. So it's a balance. But obviously, you know, too much delay is a bad thing. Rushing into things also not helpful. Can you just describe or give us an example of this expertise or strategic value that you mentioned that Omni could provide? So I think there's really two categories of that. And the first category comes out in the substantive proceedings. So simply by the sheer volume of cases that we've looked at and we've worked on in the past, We've seen a lot of cases play out. We've seen a number of strategies adopted in the past. We've seen a lot of arbitrators or judges in action before. So we can provide a lot of strategic insight, I think, as the case progresses in terms of how it should go ahead. And I think that's very valuable. So I would come to you and ask for your opinion or how does does the insight work for the case? So generally, the way a case runs on the day-to-day sort of normal course. The lawyers are running the case, but we are not necessarily involved in everything that's happening on the day-to-day, but big stuff, you know, important things, pleadings, offers of settlement, you know, procedural steps, we will be copied, we will know what's going on. And certainly through paying the monthly bills or paying the bills wherever they come up, we're aware of what's going on in the case and what steps are being undertaken. So we very much you know, either the firms will proactively ask for our input if they think we can add anything of value, but certainly if we see something happening and we've seen it before, or we're not seeing something happening that we think could usefully happen, we will raise it with the clients and with the lawyers. Ultimately, the decision as to what to do always rests with the client and is executed by the lawyers. But we do think that simply by having those kinds of discussions and weighing up options with informed background means you're really, in most circumstances, progressing the case in a more strategic and effective way. So I think that's the first area of really, you know, value add that we bring. And the second one is on the enforcement side, so actually recovering. You know, as I mentioned earlier, OmniBridgeway has been, you know, successfully recovering against all different types of entities, including sovereigns in almost any jurisdiction you can think of for the last 30 years, which means we have a lot of internal proprietary knowledge about how to do that, you know, so how to do that successfully in most jurisdictions. And if there are jurisdictions where we've been unsuccessful, we know why, and we potentially either know how to do it better the next time or the reasons why it's simply not going to be achievable in that particular place. And so, you know, efforts and resources aren't wasted in doing it. And I think that is enormously valuable to clients, particularly at the moment, also just the insights that we can bring at the early stage as to whether or not a defendant is going to be a viable target because, you know, you don't want to go through two, three, five years of of litigation proceedings against someone to ultimately find out they don't have any assets to satisfy the judgment that you get. 
we can do intelligence gathering at the very early stage to make that kind of decision and particularly with things like COVID going on at the moment. Businesses that you might otherwise have thought were, you know, very solid would not be an issue. You know, our investigations can uncover you can gain a bit more certainty in relation to their position and really make a more informed decision as to whether go ahead or not and then have a coordinated strategy in place to try and make sure assets are not dissipated or that, you know, we simply know where they are throughout the life of the case to then continually reassess whether it is still worth pursuing. I'm just thinking again, back to my example, I'm the law firm and I'm working with you at Omni. What is really my expertise in this then? If I'm running the case, like, Where does the expertise lie between Omni and a law firm? It's really a collaboration, I think. So we will only fund cases that we think have an experienced legal team running them because on the day-to-day, you know, the writing of correspondence, the making of submissions, the appearance in court is all done by the law firm. We don't do that. We don't purport to do that. While we have mostly all done that in the past, we fully recognize that that's not our day job anymore. And it's, you know, it's not our current experience. So All of that expertise has to come with the firm. And if we don't think that they have that, we won't fund a case, even if we think the merits and the economics are strong. So I think that's the first thing. So so really, we think of ourselves as a sort of strategic partner. We're looking to collaborate with the law firm to provide useful input. But, you know, ultimately, we're not doing the day-to-day work. We're not directing how the case is going to unfold. That very much stays with the firm. So I think from their perspective and what added value we bring, I do think, you know, they value the strategic input we can bring. It's not necessarily challenging to their expertise. It is. It helps to augment it, I think, so that we have the strongest and best team going forward. And I think from their perspective, too, it can be very helpful, particularly at stages where, you know, pleadings might be going to be filed or, you know, other steps are being taken. Because we're not involved in the day-to-day, we have a slightly more independent sort of bird's eye view of the case. So when we read pleadings, for example, we're looking at it more from the way an arbitrator or a judge might look at it and we can then, being a bit less engaged on the day-to-day, take a more global view of what's being argued or how it's being presented and sort of add also in that way. What about in the US where the law firm can take a stake in, in the claim? Is that a different dynamic? I think the dynamic is ultimately the same, except often, you know, the law firm has the added motivation that their recovery is also dependent on success. So ultimately, I think it for us, the working relationship between us and the law firm can be better when all of our interests are obviously aligned. In cases where the law firm is being paid in any case, you know, they might not necessarily assess the merits of the claim or how it's progressing in quite a critical as manner as they would if, if it was their own you know, recovery that was also on the line. I'm just getting back to the essence of the relationship with the law firms. And is it really the law firm that chooses Omni or the funder or is it the client? So ultimately it's the client. We, we sign the funding agreement with the client and they obviously have to agree to the commercial terms. In terms of who the client ends up speaking with, that might be directed by the law firm in terms of which funders they know or they direct inquiries to. In some jurisdictions, there are brokers who might be approached and who then, you know, will approach different funders on behalf of the client or the firm to try and get a funder involved. So there's different ways that the client might end up speaking with different funders, which is jurisdictionally dependent and also just, you know, relevant to local knowledge. So, yeah, it's it's a variety of ways that that might happen. But if I'm a law firm... 
I supposedly just want to work with the best people on the case. So from a law firm's perspective, I mean, there'll be two different scenarios. If they're looking at a client who doesn't have the funds to pursue the case without a funder, they will be more focused on the on the client's getting finance full stop because then the case can proceed and their fees will be paid, whereas without the funding, the case won't go ahead and they won't be paid. If you're looking at a client who's looking for funding for other reasons, you know, they have the money, they might spend the money otherwise, but they're considering the risk allocation advantages for them. Then a funder, well, a law firm, it also depends on their level of sophistication and what they understand funding to be as well. If they appreciate that funding can be much more than just capital, then they would hopefully be directing their clients to someone like Omni Bridgeway who adds so much extra value as well. But if, if they don't really have that knowledge, then they might not they might not appreciate that. Do you think you can build a leading litigation financer outsourcing all the, the due diligence? My personal view, no. That's my personal view. I have seen operators in the market who do that. I think you run significant risks. I mean, in, in the past, I was looking at a case that had already been funded by a funder and they were approaching us to co-fund with them. And that funder was not like us. They didn't have any legal background. They didn't really appreciate the risk of the case. They'd really looked at the investment on an economics perspective and that was it. It was an investment treaty arbitration and those types of cases you know, the value of having legal knowledge and understanding the risk of a particular claim, being able to assess the underpinnings of the legal advice that you're being given by the lawyers, I think is very important because there are nuances in those cases that if you don't understand the legalities and the substantive issues, you simply don't appreciate the risk. I think it's very hard to get to grips with the economics of a case if you don't appreciate the underlying legal substance. But you can't price it effectively. Yeah, that's my view. Others take a different view. And when does recovery become more important? In terms of considering the potential to recover at the end of the day, for us, that's important from day one. For everyone, that should be important from day one. One of the things I think that's very interesting, and again, is is something from a client's perspective that we really bring to the table, having us involved is an added advantage, is that often, you know, law firms, if they're going to be paid their fees, regardless of the outcome, don't necessarily think about recoverability at the end of the day. They think about the merits of the case. They think about if they're going to win. They advise the clients on that basis, but they may not necessarily think about how that money will actually be recovered after the award or judgment is issued. Do they get paid at the end, the law firms? No, typically they would be paid on a monthly basis as the case progresses. And that's why for them, you know, often it's a secondary factor or something that is not given as much thought as it should be. I mean, so the types of funding that we provide fall mainly into two categories. One is merits funding, and that's where we're engaged in the case as it's going through, you know, the merits phase. And the other is enforcement funding, and we can offer that in conjunction with merits funding or on its own basis. And enforcement funding means the client has gone all the way through the proceedings, they've got their judgment or award, and then they need help to recover. And often, you know, when we say to them, so what, you know, at the beginning, when you were deciding to bring your claim, what work did you do to look into the defendant to see whether you thought you'd be able to recover? What advice did your law firm provide you on that? And surprisingly often, you know, the answer is we didn't or nothing or, you know, here's this very vague sort of advice that doesn't really say anything. That's what we've got. So, and, you know, as I, you know, it's always a consideration for us. So the earlier we get brought in, the earlier that thought process is introduced. 
And so, you know, you get clarity on recoverability much faster when we're involved usually. And this recovery expertise, again, comes from experience. Yes, it comes from experience and it comes from the development of local networks. You know, particularly in this day and age, a lot of disputes will be multi-jurisdictional. They will involve different interests in different places. And even if the dispute itself is in a particular location or sort of more confined, recovery might be spread out in a number of different jurisdictions around the world. And so a lot of, as well as our own particular experience, a lot of what we also can add value by is by knowing who to go to in each place. That will then help us. Because again, it comes down to the relationships that we have with law firms. You know, we're not doing the day-to-day, but if we know who are the best people to go to for that day-to-day, then, you know, we're, we're 100 miles ahead already. So it's actually more about educating corporates and claimants about the opportunities and the claims they may have. I mean, yeah, that's part of the work we do. I also think that's just a natural, it's going to be a natural progression regardless of how much we do that um, because the more cases that we fund, you know, some companies will be repeat users. So, you know, they will use funding in one case if they have 10 cases, you know, they might then consider using it in the rest of their cases. They will probably also talk about their experience with colleagues who will then become aware of funding and think, oh, yes, you know, that's something I should think about for my, for the dispute that I'm looking at right now. Plus, there are more funders involved in the market now. So there are more people like me educating people as part of their day-to-day job. So I think just by necessity, you know, the number of, of people who are aware of funding and want to use it will increase. The number of cases where funding is considered will increase. And we always see these numbers around like, you know, 5% of total cases are actually funded or yeah, around that number. What are the real barriers to increase in that? How do you look at the evolution of that penetration of funding? It's a balance. I mean, I'm not sure. People focus on that for a number of different reasons. One of the things I think that that points to is that only, I mean, you have to have a meritorious claim, first of all. A lot of people get upset about the idea of funding of, of an uninterested third party, you know, taking part in a dispute. People think that that's somehow going to, you know, interfere with how justice operates in a bad way, which is not the case. You know, we have no interest in in engaging in cases that we don't think can be sustained on their own merits. So that's the first thing. So it's not necessarily that we need to see that number increase, but also, you know, there are the other economic factors that also have to fall into place for us to be interested in funding the claim. But then equally, you know, the client has to also want to take funding on the basis of the pricing that we can offer. And that, you know, it's at the moment we reject more cases on the basis that we're not interested in pursuing them than we offer pricing and clients don't wish to take it up with us. That might change over time, but, you know, it's hard to say. How do you look at the where we are in the life cycle of litigation financing as an industry? So I think we're definitely, again, this is quite dependent on region, jurisdiction. There's different levels of development of the industry in different places. So, but I think we're definitely beyond the startup type of, you know, environment. And I think we're now into the sort of market operation where we see people combine, we see some shakeup, you know, new entrants come, but they might not be able to stick. So we're sort of in in that secondary phase, I think. It's definitely still in a growth phase. There's numerous areas where funding is being used where it hasn't been used in the past. Corporate acceptance is definitely increasing and growing, and we expect that to continue. There's new opportunities for product development. So things that we're thinking of in particular include 
distressed asset investing, which has not typically been what we've done. Defence funding, I also mentioned, is something that I think we will get to grips with, you know, sooner rather than later. That will continue to fuel growth. In terms of the size of the industry then, Ruth, I mean, so I see all these numbers being you know, banded around, I mean, what, 800 billion for total legal fees or, you know, 120 billion for the top, you know, 200 law firms or even like 2 trillion for, you know, total claims. How do you look at the potential size of the industry in 10 years time? It's really hard to put numbers on it. I think the only real gauge you can look at is the size of the legal industry and then make an assessment of you know, how much of that is then involves cases that are suitable for funding. And it's hard because there's not necessarily that much information around. So again, you know, we've talked about the US. In relation to court litigation, there's more data available. So you can get a better idea of how much is being spent on legal services. So I think there's huge potential for growth. It's hard to say with certainty exactly what those figures are, which is, I think, why you often end up getting you know, everyone sort of discusses these fairly amorphous figures and, and that's the answer.